Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Radio broadcast, the Thunderbolt Hour, Father Charles Coughlin, XERB Radio, Los Angeles, bootleg transmitter, Tijuana, Mexico, Tuesday, December 30th, 1941. Good evening and bienvenidos, a belated Feliz Navidad, and let's not forget Prospero Año y Felicidad, which means Happy New Year in English and serves to introduce the Mexico at War theme of tonight's broadcast. And at war we are, my fellow American listeners, even though we sure as shooting didn't want to be in the first place. But let's talk turkey here. Es la verdad, as our Mex cousins say. We have been in this Jew-inspired boondoggle a mere 23 days, and we've been forced to stand with the rape-happy Russian Reds against the more sincerely simpatico Nazis. That's a shattering shame, but our Jew pawn president, Franklin Doublecross Rosenfeld, has deliriously decreed that we must fight der Führer, so fight that heroic hefe we regretfully must. It's a ways off, though, because we've got our hands full with the Japs right now. So let's meander down Mexico way where the senoritas sizzle and the more hell-bent jefes hold sway. Mexico, it connotes proudly Catholic, does it not, friends? Add theocratic republic, anti-red, and dutifully religious to that. It paints a picture, doesn't it? Yes, it paints a picture, but the picture is wholly inaccurate and sorrowfully seditious, dating back to the tempestuous 20s and the repugnant red reign of Presidente Plutarco Callas. Item. Callas instituted a six-year plan for social and political reform patterned after red Russia's five-year plan. Item, Kala set out to eradicate the influence of the Catholic Church 
barred religious festivals and processions and created workers' collectives to counter the alleged excesses of industrial capitalism and further secularize the Mexican body politic despite the stubborn opposition of the Catholic Mexican people. Item, Catholic bishops were forced to suspend public worship. Item, Collis's red shirt goon squads shuttered churches across Mexico. Item, priests were murdered, nuns were raped, bishops sought South American asylum, and the holy mass was performed as a secret sacrament. Item, Cancerous Collis was succeeded by limp leftist Lazaro Cardenas. He was a motley molly coddler of a less malicious sort. His anti-clerical policies bore a still Stalinist but less overt stink. Priests were still murdered, nuns were still raped, provincial despots still shuttered churches, and satanically forbade mass. Item, these practices continue under current Presidente Manuel Avila Camacho, a purported leftist centrist. Read that as one mealy-mouthed muchacho. And this brings us to the Cristeros, the rip-snorting, righteous Catholic resistance. The gold shirts, not the red shirts, of the Collis Cardenas communist ilk. The armed home guard that fought fire with fire, killed red shirts, lynched communist commissars and apoplectic operatchiks, and burned more than a few red reptiles alive. The Cristeros flourished under Callas and were forced into hiding under Cardenas. In 37, they majestically metamorphosed into the Union Nacional Sinarquista. Sinarchism means without anarchy. Sinarchismo represents a full-fledged assault on the anti-Catholic left. Underground intervention now in force, Presidente Camacho's atheistic agenda, the Sinarchistas magnificently mount a Catholic counterattack. The Sinarchistas are growing in number. They proselytize for emerged Catholic secular state. They've been called fascistas and Nazis, but that's all red hoo-ha. Yes, they surely grew out of the Spanish Falange and Generalissimo Francisco Franco's valiant victory in the Spanish Civil War. And now, with the United States embroiled in a consuming world conflict, and with Mexico situated at our southernmost tip, Will the green shirts and archistas serve our best interests as the emergent world power, both anti-axis and nationalistically non-red? Item, 
Mexico has remained neutral in this world conflict so far. Item, Presidente Camacho closed the German consulate in August of 41, but has let a great many pro-Axis Krauts and Japs linger down Mexico way. Enter. <laughs> Baja, California. Yeah, cats. Baja's that lurid lick of Mexican land south of our own San Diego. It's a hellish hotbed of fascista communista intrigue. There's a great many resident Japs. The Mex State Police suspect the presence of a great many Jap submarine berths along Baja's Pacific coastline. There's talk of secret Jap air bases being readied for raids on US naval installations and defense plants near Los Angeles. Enter, Sinarquista boss man, Salvador Abascal. Senor Abascal es muy católico. He's the Sinarquista's spiritual and intellectual leader, and he wears Sinarquismo's green shirt proudly. Like most male adherents to Sinarquismo, he wears a small SQ with a coiled snake encircling it, tattooed in the web of his right forefinger and thumb. He's a handsome man of 31, and Presidente Camacho seems to fear him. Item, the Sinarquista membership is growing in Mexico and the US. Item, punk patriarch Camacho has granted them land for an encampment at Magdalena Bay in southern Baja. Is he isolating the Sinarquistas or is he readying them for some task? US Army officers are now mobilizing in Baja. They will sort out the political gestalt and round up Japs in a replication of our own Jap internment efforts. What is the upshot here? Will Mexico end its neutered neutral stance and throw in with Uncle Sam? America is now alarmingly aligned with the repugnant Russian Reds against the nefarious but completely nifty Nazis. Will the Mexican peso and the US dollar plummet? And will a new gold standard arouse? And what about those ripe rumors? Nazis and Ruskies melting gold bars into swastika and hammer and sickle artifacts. Mexico, my American hermanos and Christian countrymen, it's the southern gateway to our cherished shores. Will waterlogged wetbacks breach our borders and sap us with sabotage? Will the Sinarquistas come to our aid as a heroic home guard? Yeah!
Good evening, peepers, prowlers, pederasts, pedants, panty sniffers, punks, and pimps. I'm James Elroy, the death dog with the hog log, the foul owl with the death growl, and the slick trick with the donkey dick. I am the author of 19 books, masterpieces all. These books precede all my future masterpieces. These books will leave you reamed, steamed, and dry cleaned, tied, dyed, and swept to the side, screwed, blued, tattooed, and bafongooed. These are books for the whole fucking family if the name of your family is the Manson family. If each and every one of you buy 1,000 copies of my new novel, This Storm, tonight, you will be able to have unlimited sex with each and every person on this earth that you desire every night for the rest of your lives. Yeah! If each and every one of you buy 2,000 copies of my books tonight, you will be able to have unlimited sex with each and every person on this earth that you desire every night for the rest of your lives and still get into heaven as the result of a special dispensation <laughs> signed by me, the Reverend Elroy. <laughs> if each and every one of you buy 3,000 copies of this book tonight, you get the sex, you get into heaven. And for the first time, and it's grunged out, counterculture history, East Hollywood and Silver Lake will rule the world. <laughs> yeah! You heard it here first. Off the record, on the QT, and very hush, hush. Yeah! Let's cut back to the dark, cold winter of 2008. I was living southwest of here at my lonely divorce pad, the Ravenswood Apartments, on Rossmore and Clinton. I was staring out my southern office window, wondering why I didn't have a girlfriend. I was on the A-level, must-interdict watch list of alimony International. <laughs> and I had a synaptic flash. It hit me all at once. I saw a very vivid picture of forlorn-looking Japanese in the back of a U.S. Army transport vehicle headed up a snow-covered mountain pass to the Manzanar internment camp in the winter of 1942. It immediately came to me. I will write the second L.A. Quartet. I will take characters from my original L.A. Quartet, real life and fictional, four novels, The Black Dahlia, The Big Nowhere, L.A. Confidential and White Jazz, set in Los Angeles, right here, my smog-bound fatherland, between the years 1946 and 1958, plus characters, real life and fictional, from my Underworld USA trilogy, Three novels, American Tabloid, The Cold 6000, and Blood's a Rover. I will put them in L.A. during World War II as significantly younger people than their original lifespans, which went from 1958 to 1972. The first novel will be called Perfidia. 
it will be a gigantic novel, a story told in real time from December 6, 1941, the day before the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, go through 23 days to the end of the month, and was published to tumultuous acclaim, worldwide bestseller status in the fall of 14, and the second book, I knew that in the moment, back in 08, would be called This Storm, and it would carry the story through from New Year's 41 into 42 and go through May of 42. That's all the news that's unfit to print. Here is this book. It's a great book. I think it's the best book I've ever written. But then I think that of all the books that I write and each successive book I love more and hold in higher esteem than all the books that preceded it. And this means one of two things. A, either I'm getting better, 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 and better, or I'm delusional and completely full of shit. <laughs> Tonight it would honor me to answer the most invasively over personal questions that each and every one of you, peepers, prowlers, pederasts, pedants, panty sniffers, punks, and pimps, has for me. There's one topic that's entirely verboten. I don't talk about politics today. I don't talk about President Trump, what's going on in the world. I don't know, I don't care, I don't comment. Nothing stands in for anything else in my books. I deny the existence of everything that transpires since May of 1942 when this book closes. There's one comment I don't want to hear. I've heard it 16,000 times already the five weeks that I've been on the road in Britain and the U.S. And here's what it is. It is the lamest, stupidest epigraph in American history. Mr. Alroy, don't you believe that those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it? <laughs> no, fuck off. Who's your daddy? <laughs> Get a job. Because if you don't buy 3,000 copies of this book tonight, You'll always be on welfare, and you'll never be worth the shit. And if that's not an inducement to adhere to the Q&A protocol of this reading, plus everything you get for buying 3,000 copies of this book, man, I don't know what else it could be. Given this proviso, I'm listening. Raise your hands, please. Yeah, man in the back. No, no, I'm not doing the audio version of this book. I'll tell you why. I'm not an actor and I can't differentiate voices. And the man who reads the book unabridged for Random House Audio, a very fine actor named Craig Wasson, allegedly does a bang-up job. He's a crackerjack actor. You might have gassed on him some 30 years ago in the Brian De Palma film, Body Double. And... What else? Yeah, a couple others. He was a he was a second line leading man thirty odd years ago, and now he reads books for a living. He does a crackerjack job, but nobody can differentiate hundreds of voices, male, female, old, 
young. It's a tough, tough go. I've read the abridged version <clears throat> of my memoir, My Dark Places, There's No Dialogue in it. It's just exposition. And I've read the unabridged version of my companion memoir, The Hilliker Curse, No Dialogue. And I do a good job. But it's, it's tough work. Every time you pop a pea, you start over at the beginning of the sentence. You got to watch what you eat the night before. Your stomach gurgles, the microphone picks it up. You. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll allow you those two. Yeah, yeah. 2,998 to go. I noticed on the audiobook, they changed the cover. It's not a, it's Sure it is. Yeah, I've seen, I've seen the audio. Let's see. It's this. It's, it's, it's for what? It's, it's not that. Well, is it American? Is it Craig Wasson reading it? Well, then they changed it. Yeah. I don't care. Yeah. And another comment. Aren't you afraid of hate speech mail because of a swastika on the cover? Hey, Jack, it's, it's 1942. It's America. L.A. is under imminent threat of Axis air and sea attack. It's a symbol. Get it? Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm preempting your comment. Yeah. Let's see. Don't, don't let anything be given away to you, though, because you were at Perfidia. Yeah. I remember. We talked about it. Huh. Uh, this time, you add some uh, you know, editorial commentary towards the characters that you in Perfidia, like punk people, uh, blow Shit, bar, ship, shit birds. Yeah. Yeah, right. uh, uh -huh. What would you say about Dudley Smith if you were to add some commentary for him? I would not want to reveal Dudley Smith any more than I have. So I keep it deliberately bland when I list Dudley as a character. Right. Yes? I, I love Buzz Meeks. And yeah. I'm, I'm glad you brought him back. Um, and, well, obviously, he was there first. But do you, is that a blast to go back to that character, particularly, and, and, and you know, bring him back to life in this series? Yeah, Dudley Smith is a demonic Irish-American cop born in Dublin in 1906. And he emigrates under the aegis of the corrupt father of President John F. Kennedy, Joseph P. Kennedy. And in fact, Joe Kennedy gets him on the LAPD. That's for people who haven't read Perfidia, the preceding novel here. There you go. Yes, it's a blast. Brother, I'm going to sign that for you. Huh. Huh. Yeah, man the bat. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I decided to make Two-Gun Davis a character in these first two books. He was a psychopath. There's not much doubt of that. He was the corrupt chief of LAPD in both the late 20s and the mid-30s. He had two terms as chief. Yeah, grand jury sacked his ass. He was followed up by a, a chief named Arthur Homan and then Chief Clements, call me Jack Harrell, who is a character in 
both these books. Anything more gives too much shit away, as you well know. Yes, sir. Let's see. Who do you have in mind? You read the book. Oh, okay. Okay. There's some funny shit in the past two books with Orson Welles. Okay? I don't like Orson Welles. I've never liked him. And Dudley Smith develops an animus for Orson Welles in this particular book. I don't like Citizen Kane. I'd rather watch Flies Fuck in Alabama than, than have to sit through an Orson Welles movie. There's one. Conversely, I've always liked Chief William H. Whiskey Bill Parker. I think he's gotten a bad rap from history. He's much humanized in Perfidia. He is a maybe the tragic hero of the Second L.A. Quartet. There's a couple of teasers for the folks in the audience. These are controversial views to hold, but you know, I live for that shit. I live for your praise. I live for your censure. <laughs> I embody paradox in the American male. <laughs> ah! Jim. Oh, Jimmy. My friend Jim McSorley here asked me if I got negative or positive feedback or blowback from the heirs of real life characters that I have depicted in my books. No. They also have no legal right to sue. That's the way it works in America. Once a person's dead, you write what you damn well please about them, and I do, with legal impunity. When I go, people will do that to me. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Patrick. I don't research heavily, Patrick. I do a threadbare job at this. I hire researchers who compile fact sheets and chronologies so that I won't write myself into egregious error. What I'm looking for is the extrapolative spark point where I see that I have latitude to fictionalize. An example of this would be reading through the LA Times and the Hearst Papers here in LA for the month of December 1941 when I was doing the initial go-through, historical go-through on Perfidia, my big novel of the grave injustice of the Japanese internment. And I saw that the early roundups of both real, suspected, and alleged Japanese fifth columnists was entirely slapdash. 
all of the reports were ambiguous and open to interpretation. And I breathed a big sigh of relief because I had a great deal of latitude to fictionalize. And that has been my metier since I started writing historical-based books way back with the Black Dahlia some 34 years ago. Sir. It fits in anomalously and incongruously. Clandestine is my second novel. It was published as a paperback original in 1982. It's my first period novel, set in 1951. It is a very clumsy first swipe at <clears throat> the uh, 1958 murder of my mother, Jean Hilliker, unsolved to this day. Dudley Smith appears in it incongruously anomalously, I just hadn't developed him yet. So it is a anomalous, incongruous, early attempt to write a period novel. Don't start there. Start with the Underworld USA trilogy. Start with the LA Quartet. Now both available in handsome, hardbound, perennial, every man's library editions. I have been canonized. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sir. Um, I was surprised to see the book dedicated to Helen Canoe. Yeah. Uh-huh. Helen Canoe's my second ex-wife. We got back together. I moved to Denver to be with her. Yes. I've dedicated three books to Helen. My novel White Jazz, my novel This Storm, my memoir My Dark Places the transient women in my life between my marriages to Helen only got, if anything, one book apiece. <laughs> Three dedications, that's staying power. In fact, <laughs> Helen has gone so far as to take me off the watch list of Alimony International. <laughs> yeah, sure. Three months. Three months. I'm on this book tour now, and I go to Europe in the fall. Yeah. That's, yeah. I, I, yeah. It's all worked out up here. Then I write the gigantic outlines. I write by hand. I don't have a computer. I've never used a cell phone. I don't know how to turn on Helen's TV set. I don't know how to do streaming, any of that other shit. I have a fax machine. I have an assistant who types up my books. Yeah. Three months. Door to door. Back to work. Sir. Chronologically, always. Start with Perfidia. That's the chronological beginning of my career as a historical novelist, the guy who merged the crime novel, the historical novel, and the political novel. Then read The Storm, the two concluding volumes that I haven't written yet of the second LA Quartet. Go back and read The Black Dahlia, The Big Nowhere, LA Confidential, White Jazz, American Tabloid, The Cold 6,000, Bloods Are Over. And if I'm still kicking, when I finish this great body of work, I'm going to write the second Underworld USA trilogy. 
Yo soy el tigre, malo y feo, y grande. Don't know yet. Man asked me, what are the years? I'll let you know. Next time I see you here for the next book. If you buy 3,000 books. <laughs> It, no, brother, no, no, no. I don't know who killed the Black Dahlia. I don't know who killed my mother. I don't know who killed J JFK. I don't know who killed Georgette Bauerdorf, who figures in Helen Kinode's first novel, The Ticket Out. I don't know. I shouldn't have endorsed the Hodel book. I led with my heart because I like Steve. There you go. We're never going to know. Get over it, right? You can get over it, right? You're... you're yeah, you're weighed down by having such a good head of hair. If you were bald like me, you wouldn't be burdened with this stuff. <laughs> and see me after the reading, because you could make some good dough by giving me a transplant. <laughs> or as a fellow so tall, who I used to know once said, you want hair, buy a fucking wig. <laughs> yes, woman over here. I don't miss anything here. I'm happy to be living in, you know, groovy, swinging, clean, Denver, Colorado. It's cold most of the time, which I appreciate. I don't like the heat. It's not smoggy and it's not congested. Yeah. I go to John Elway's steakhouse all the time because it's it's not very good, <laughs> but there's better steaks in Denver. But it's a quintessentially Denver thing to do, and then I can over tip. All, I, can, I can take all of my tendencies to overtip and try to buy people's love and lay it on the staff there at Elway Steakhouse. I'd, you know, if John Elway were ever to walk up to me, I'd tip him just for talking to me. <laughs> but I don't give a shit about football. That might make conversation difficult. And I don't think he gives a shit about books either. Yeah, woman over here. You read something wrong. It's never going to be a movie. There will never be another movie made from my books. They're all tied up here and there, and I got paid, and it's all gone away. Yeah. I hate to disillusion you. Yeah. But this gives you, not going to that movie or other movies, based on anything I've written, gives you more time to read. And keep in mind, books are more important than motion pictures and television shows. Here, here. Yeah! Yeah. yeah. Because, because they are the individually indigenous art form. That's books, right? One person, man, woman, yeah, writes them always. Yeah. Okay. Woman over here. So you don't watch television, you don't do computer, you don't have a cell phone, you just keep reading all the time. Mm -hmm. To create, have you thought about maybe what you would be able to say to young people? I would, I would exhort this young man here to read. I would tell him that the genesis of, of my big obsession with history were stacks of Life magazine that were collected in a closet at my parents' place. And I had my snout in them from a very early age. World War II 
era magazines, pre-war, post-war, government investigating committees, crime commissions, all of it. In 1956, when I was eight years old, I said something that alerted my mother to the fact that I believed World War II was still going on. It was just that pervasively in the American consciousness. And my mother said, au contraire, Junior, the war ended three years before you were born. I didn't believe her then, and I don't believe her now. <laughs> Reading is a great spur to living in your imagination. Going on the internet to buy your next pair of shoes, secure your next dubious sexual partner, or read bad news about the world presented in an alarmist fashion doesn't get you as much as reading a novel which takes you to some place not about you and a place that you could not have imagined. That's my gift to everyone here. You're welcome. You're welcome. Yeah. Yes, la verdad. A couple more questions, yeah. Hey, Jack. Yeah, I'm big. I'm big in Europe. Yeah, they love me in France. I outsell. Let's see. I outsell my British and American readership here. I'd say seven to one. Yeah, yeah. I'm a sensation in France. Yeah. They dig this shit. Yeah. Yeah, Ward Littell, who is in the FBI man, who is in Perfidia, and this storm was originally a character in American tabloid in the Colt 6000. Yeah. Is that a fun challenge because it's a little different than you know, going from bottom out? So you know what I mean, going back and having to sort of, or is it just? Yeah, it was a, it was a rigorous challenge because you had to track the birth dates of the people and their ages when they were older people to see if those ages comport with World War II America. Yeah. So I compiled fact sheets and chronologies as to this. Physical descriptions, the ranks of police officers. Yeah. I did all that. Yeah. Do you have a title for the next following of this? I do, but I, I ain't telling anybody yet. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you, yeah, mm-hmm. I do not have a new dog. I've been bitten six times since I've lived in Denver, often by French bulldogs. They are, they are stealth biter accessory dogs. They come up to you, wag, 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 love, 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 and then you go, oh, baby, you look good, baby, and you've been down to pet him or kiss him or something like that. Chomp. Uh, there's a dog who lives in my building named Saffron, which is, you know, it's a shit name for a dog. <laughs> and she has a brother named Wasabi. Was, was she a female. Saffron's a female. And she's a stealth biter. You know, she calls, oh, baby, Uncle Elroy, you're so, oh, you love dogs. Wag, wag, wag. <laughs> like that.
you know, Wasabi's okay. I can talk to him man to man. Hey, baby, you know, how's it hanging, big dog? You're looking good. He goes for that shit. Uh-uh, not saffron. Six times I've been bitten. Frisbee dogs in Denver, big biters. Watch out. Yeah, I'm sorry, though. Yeah, yes. Yes. No. I'm, I'm obsessed with classical music. I like jazz very much, less so than classical music. I, I, I have no affinity for rock and roll or any other kind of music, but man, do I love classical music. I got pictures of Beethoven, busts of Beethoven and Wagner all over my place. I got a big brass bust of Beethoven like that. Yeah. Sir? No, no to, no to both. This book and Perfidia are identical in length, about 195,000 words, about 130 chapters. This book paged out at 608, while Perfidia, identical in length, came in at 703. That's because the Alfred A. Knopf production department shifted the margins. For the life of me, since I'm not digital at all, Computer illiterate, in fact, I can't figure this out. They look the same to me, the pages. It's a mystery. Yeah, sir. I wouldn't call Jack Webb sleazy. He's a fawning toady to the Los Angeles <laughs> Police Department. In my view, he was always in awe of LAPD and Chief William H. Parker, and properly so. He was an awe-inspiring man. And, but he was never a policeman, and he couldn't get into the Army Air Corps during the big war because he had poor eyesight. And I've got him as a hustler, and I respect him as an artist. He was certainly television's first great auteur. And it was because he met a robbery division detective named Marty Wynn when he was a B-movie actor on the occasion of the shoot for, what was it? He walked by night that Dragnet, both as a radio show and a TV show, was conceived. And Whiskey Bill Parker saw that Jack Webb would be a good propaganda foil for the LAPD. Yes, woman over here. No, 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 no. I'm growling. Uh, man. Yeah. That's my that's the growl of the Bengal tiger and the demon dog. That's not a snore. Yeah. Yeah. Well, women are women, and I've, I've had a, a long and a, a rocky road with, with women in general. And toward the issue of women in my books and the art of women in my books, I'll say this. I have one great theme, and it supersedes all others. It's not official misconduct. It's not crime. It's not the great noir theme of you're fucked, which more respectfully expressed could be called the consequences of sin. But it's this, bad men in love 
with strong women. There are three women. Two were television and film actresses from my youth. One of them, Shirley Knight, still very, very much alive. I mean, man, if you want to see a terrific woman on the prowl, woman on the loose, woman disenfranchised in the classic way of disenfranchised men, but without the defining self-pity that really serves to backstop male isolation. There's a movie that is ultimately a turkey directed by Francis Ford Coppola from 1970 called The Rain People. And the great Ms. Knight, still with us in her early 80s, hails from Wichita, Kansas, I believe. She is very poorly backstopped by Hambones, Robert Duvall, and James Caan. Boy, do they suck compared to her. Boy, man, Shirley Knight in The Rain People. Then the late, great Lois Nettleton, who I first saw on TV in episodes of Naked City, where Ms. Knight also appeared. These two women form the basis of the quintessential Elroy female character. It's a capital T, capital L, capital H, capital W, the lonely haunted woman. The third point of this triangle is my mother, Jean Hilliker. In her honor, Jean Hilliker, 1915 to 1958, I will read very briefly from chapter three. Then I'll take some more questions. Chapter three, Joan Conville. San Diego, 12.15 a.m., 1, 1, 42. Should old acquaintance be forgot and days of old lang syne. Yells and hoots, noisemaker shriek, shouted toasts, and remember Pearl Harbor. Revelers crammed up the sky room. You've got navy brass on a toot. There's grabbing and groping. There's full-length necking on the dance floor. Stan Kenton presents artistry in rhythm. The misty June Christie purrs select vocals. The sky room was glass-walled and umpteen floors high. You got wide views of battle-dressed beachfront. You got storm clouds and the world's darkest sky. Joan Dodge gropes. She clutched her purse and made for the door. She was half-gassed. L.A. was three hours north. Army checkpoints would stall traffic. The shoreline blackout would drop, shroud-like. She dodged last-ditch gropes and escaped. She made the elevator and pushed one. Mirrored walls hemmed her in. They were too good to pass up. She winked. She whistled. She was too proud to falter and too tall and good-looking to lose. Her red hair... Her green eyes, her bold six-foot sway, 
her trim winter uniform, gold buttons and braid. Lieutenant Junior Grade J.W. Conville, USNR. You shitbird Japs better watch out. Yeah. Several more questions. Yes, remember her. We're all here because we devoured the books. Yeah. There is no, there's nobody but me. And I can't honestly say, aside from a few books, none of them written by people one would normally consider crime writers, but rather mainstream writers who took a shot at explicating historical crimes. I would say that I just read and read and read, and when it came time to write, I had assimilated style. I had assimilated technique. I had something to write about. Crime, history, political malfeasance, bad men in love with strong women. The three books are Meyer Levin's 1956 novel, Compulsion, about the Leopold and Loeb killing, Chicago, 1924. John Gregory Dunn's 1977 novel, True Confessions which is based nominally, and lucky for me, on the Black Dahlia murder case, although it is a fanciful Los Angeles that the late Mr. Dunn exposits. And thirdly, concludingly, and most auspiciously, Don DeLillo's great novel of the Kennedy assassination, Libra. Those three books, the most influential. Yeah. Jack. There were a couple of film noir actors. There was the great Hambone, Sterling Hayden. And I, I should add that, uh, that Jack Conley here appeared in the film, L.A. Confidential, based on my great novel of the same title. He played the vice captain there and very, very ably some 22 years ago. The late Curtis Hanson, who directed L.A. Confidential, and I went to see Crime Wave with Sterling Hayden in the wake of the opening of L.A. Confidential. And there's Sterling Hayden, who is 6'5", about 245 pounds, and he blusters. He, they built the sets for Crime Wave, the LAPD squadron sets, very short so as to emphasize his great bulk and cast shorter actors opposite him. And I nudged Curtis as the movie unfurled, and I said, fuck Russell Crowe, that's Bud White. Well, that says a lot there. Then there's these two quintessential film noir actors. They had very, very narrow ranges, narrow shtick. There is self-pitying psychopath, blame the world psychopath, Robert Ryan. Yeah, he is out to avoid personal responsibility for his own misconduct. In Crossfire, 
he blames the Jews for his own shit. In Bad Day at Black Rock, he blames the Japanese for his own shit. Most notably, in Odds Against Tomorrow, he blames black folks for his own shit. Most notably, in the person of, you guessed it, Harry Belafonte. Deo, deo, daylight come and we want go home. Because not only does Harry Belafonte look better than him, dress better than him, have better looking girlfriends, he also sings better than him. <laughs> He's a real turd, Robert Ryan, in movies and he, he gets right to the core of the shithead man who wants to be authentic and is really consumed by uh, sticky self-pity. Uh, I know men better than any writer alive. And this is something that I despise about my own gender. Deo, deo. Also, noir chump, Edmund O'Brien. Pudgy, sweaty. He's always doing this. Yeah, like Rodney Dangerfield. Huh? Man, what's going on here? And he thinks, common male misconception, that all women want him. He is sadly mistaken. He's out chasing the woof woof in DOA. He's moving in on the blonde and some shithead guy slips him a cocktail full of irradium and he's dead in four 24 hours. Yeah. Noir chump Edmund O'Brien. Couple more questions. Yes, man, the bat. No, no. You know, I can take her leave to Shiro Mifune. No. Adeo Ishida is a complex guy. Let a, let, you know, Toshiro Mifune is, eh, you know, he's okay. He's another guy who could give me a hair transplant. And he appears in one of the greatest to crime movies, Kurosawa's High and Low, based on the Ed McBain novel, King's Ransom. No, Ishida. He's my guy to tell the story of the Japanese internment from the perspective of his rare genius. And he's in this book, and he's in the, the preceding novel, Perfidia. Yeah. Two more questions. Yes? Yeah, I always do. I got two great editors in New York Sonny Mehta, who runs Afrikanov, and Edward Kastenmeyer, who is the guy who goes over the outlines and the manuscripts page by page by page. Yeah, we're all tight, the three of us. Yes, boss. I was a, I was a shithead kid. I was a, a loudmouth from the gate. Yeah. One more question. I can't close on that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. This woman over here. Yeah. I have a desk. Yeah, I have a desk, and I have a landline phone on the desk, and I have a filing, some filing cabinets, and I have pictures of bull terrier dogs and Beethoven on the walls. Barco. Barco. 
Yeah, Barco is one of the, the great, yes, bull terriers of all time. We'll see him on the other side. Pardon me? Yeah, you didn't bring him to see his Uncle Elroy? Yeah. Okay, how old is he? 12? Four? He's eight, yeah. How many cats has he snagged? What? Don't tell me he loves cats. Uh, uh, Helen and I had, we'll see her on the other side too, had a bull terrier named Margaret. She had a beautiful red and white coat. And I named her after Margaret Thatcher. Yeah, one of my favorite British prime ministers, in fact, world leaders of all time. Margaret was a shit-kicking, cat-hunting, toilet-drinking, crotch-sniffing, leg-humping mother Fucker. <laughs> Helen and I used to paint fighter squadron numbers on her dog bed every time she got a raccoon. Final count. One, two, three, four. One across. That's five. One, two, three, four. Margaret, nine. Raccoons, zero. Does anybody want to ask me, why do you write? Or you can all ask it at once. One more time, please. Yeah! One more time, please. In my craft or sullen art, exercised in the still night, when only the moon rages and the lovers lie abed with all their griefs in their arms, I labor by singing light, not for the strut and trade of charms upon the ivory stages, but for the common wages of their most secret heart. Not for the proud man apart do I write on these spindrift pages, but for the lovers, their arms round the griefs of the ages, who pay no praise or wages, nor heed my craft or art. Dylan Thomas. Thank you. God bless you. Chris, yeah. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.